This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 242, Sci-Fi. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. We continue reading month with one of my least favorite genres. I'll traverse the galaxy to find a good topic for the podcast if I have to. And this week I have to. We'll cover what one Bible character did upon seeing a legitimate UFO. C.S. Lewis's attempt to find Jesus on a different planet. The proof of alien life and why no one seems to care very much. And my own close encounter of the board gaming kind. We'll start with what I've been preaching. I looked and there was a whirlwind coming from the north. A huge cloud with fire flashing back and forth and brilliant light all around it. In the center of the fire, there was a gleam like amber. The likeness of four living creatures came from it, and this was their appearance. They looked something like human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the hooves of a calf, sparkling like the gleam of polished bronze. They had human hands under their wings on their four sides. The creatures did not turn as they moved. Each one went straight ahead. The likeness of the living creatures was like the appearance of blazing coals of fire, or like torches. Fire was moving back and forth between the living creatures. It was bright, with lightning coming out of it. When I looked at the living creatures, there was one wheel on the ground beside each of the four-faced creatures. Their appearance and craftsmanship was like a wheel within a wheel. Their rims were tall and awe-inspiring. Each of the four rims was full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels moved beside them. And when the creatures rose from the earth, the wheels also rose. Over the heads of the living creatures, the lightness and expanse was spread out. It gleamed like awe-inspiring crystal. And under the expanse, their wings extended toward one another. They also had two wings covering their bodies. When they moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of a huge torrent, like the voice of the Almighty, and a sound of tumult like the noise of an army. A voice came from above the expanse over their heads. When they stopped, they lowered their wings. Something like a throne with the appearance of lapis lazuli was above the expanse over their heads. On the throne, high above, was someone who looked like a human. From what seemed to be his waist up, I saw a gleam like amber, with what looked like fire enclosing it all around. From what seemed to be his waist down, I also saw what looked like fire. There was a brilliant light all around him. The appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. When I saw it, I fell face down and heard a voice speaking. Is there any wonder why some people believe Ezekiel saw an alien spaceship? That's really what it sounds like, isn't it? And essentially, that's what it was. God and his angels are not extraterrestrial beings in the conventional sense of the word. And God's mobile throne of fire, his war wagon, as Jim McGuigan describes it, could not be described exactly as a flying saucer. But nothing I read in Ezekiel chapter 1 looks like anything or anyone native to any planet I have ever lived on. You want to talk about close encounters? This is a close encounter. It's strange, though, how people who protest any consideration at all of God are more than willing to attribute godlike qualities to otherworldly beings. They can exist outside of space and time. They can appear and disappear at will. They can travel great distances in a blink of an eye. They can speak entire worlds into or out of existence. You can even call them gods if you want to. Just don't say anything about these gods claiming to have a right to tell us what to do on our own planet. 
whether we're talking about War of the Worlds, Independence Day, V, or any number of other stories. We humans expect one another to assert our own will in the face of unspeakable power, and even have some expectations of success in doing so. The Bible has plenty of narratives worthy of sci-fi novels. Moses in Egypt and at the Red Sea. The walls of Jericho falling down. 185,000 Assyrian troops dying in a single night outside the walls of Jerusalem. The entire planet being inundated by water. We read and emphasize these stories so much, perhaps we leave the impression that this is simply how God presents himself to lowly creatures such as ourselves. And when he doesn't, well, we pretty much do what people in the Bible do. We forget he's there and convince ourselves we are masters of our own destiny. It's good to remind yourself every once in a while how truly otherworldly our God is. If you can muster up some of the awe Ezekiel felt on that day, perhaps even fall on your face in awe as he did, you might be in position to listen better to what he has to say. And if, as was the case with Ezekiel, God's message is not too appetizing, you'll muster up the wherewithal to swallow it anyway. This is what I've been reading. I am not a science fiction reader. I can't really explain why. It's not just the suspension of disbelief thing. I can make myself believe unbelievable things for the sake of enjoying a good story, if it's folklore or mythology or maybe fantasy. But for some reason, you put space travel into the mix and I start checking out. There are exceptions, especially with movies. But finding a sci-fi book I'm even willing to pick up, let alone enjoy, is tough. That's likely why I've avoided C.S. Lewis's science fiction novels in the past. But I figured this was the year to give him a try. And his first novel, Out of the Silent Planet, looked encouragingly short, so I did give it a try. Let's just say, if this is the first book in a trilogy, I'll be passing on the other two. It's fine. Just not my thing. For those who don't know, Out of the Silent Planet is about a man named Elwin Ransom, who gets knocked over the head and taken out on a spaceship to a planet that turns out to be what we call Mars. His captors warn him about a terrifying race of beings called the Eldil that will destroy him if given half a chance. Why you'd trust humans who've kidnapped you instead of space creatures you didn't even know existed a few hours ago, I don't know. And as it turns out, what a shock, his human captors are mistaken about life on Mars entirely. They are trying to create the same sort of horrible world on Mars that we have already on Earth, complete with ecological nightmares, tyrannical overlords, and all the rest of it. Blah, blah, blah. In the end, the Eldils serve a master who's supposed to look like Jesus, who in turn is the son of someone who's supposed to look like God, and they are far better allies for Ransom than the other humans ever could be. If you know anything about C.S. Lewis, especially the Narnia stories, you won't be surprised at this turn of events. It's pretty standard these days to see sci-fi as a commentary on current conditions right here on planet Earth. If Gene Roddenberry wanted to weigh in regarding race relations, women's rights, and the Cold War in the late 60s, what better way than to put everyone on the same spaceship and send them out to boldly go where no one has gone before? That's a Star Trek reference, by the way, in case I gave you the impression that I ignore sci-fi entirely. I don't. I don't bring all this up to criticize Out of the Silent Planet for being derivative. It's the other way around. Lewis, H.G. Wells, and perhaps a handful of others were the groundbreakers, and everyone's been copying them ever since. They've been copying because it's a trope that works. 
Staring someone in the face and calling them an idiot won't likely affect any real change other than getting you a bed at the local hospital. Criticizing strangers in a far-off world for doing exactly what the idiot in question is doing, that might have a chance of success. Dare to dream, right? It's essentially the tactic Jesus used, minus a warp drive or two. He trapped the lawyer in Luke 10 verses 25 through 37 into admitting his own hypocrisy and even saying something nice about a Samaritan by telling him a story about the way love thy neighbor was actually supposed to work. The hypocritical Jews wound up condemning themselves and commending the tax collectors and prostitutes by answering a question from Jesus about a man with two sons in Matthew 21, 28 through 32. You would think that it figured out by that point that playing Jesus' games would not turn out well for them. Unfortunately, though, the ones most in need of the lesson are usually the ones who come up with excuses to not learn them. Parables wind up being lessons for the converted, far more than for the unconverted. Jesus said as much when he began emphasizing parables as a teaching technique. He said of his detractors in Matthew 13, 12, For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Then he quoted Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, where God said rebellious people of past generations had thought the same way. Does that mean you're wasting your time illustrating much-needed points? No. It means your cleverness of speech is not the key to turning men's hearts from evil to good. The gospel, and the gospel alone, is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. You have the opportunity, and I believe the obligation, to put it in terms that will be most easily understood and accepted. But in the end, the burden of responsibility is on the listener to find his way to faith. All you can do is what Jesus did. Tell them a story, and then stand at the door and knock. This is what I've been hearing. In any year other than 2023, conversations about Mexican aliens would have been taken a whole other way. Not that the usual topic didn't come up once or twice. But 2023 will be forever remembered as the year we conclusively proved the existence of extraterrestrial life. Well, that's probably an overstatement. Let me back up a bit. For those of you who actually were on another planet this year, a self-proclaimed journalist and ufologist, yes, that is a term, named Jaime Massan made a presentation back in September to the Mexican Senate. He displayed what he claimed were two fossilized bodies of non-human corpses. He said DNA testing would prove they were not of this world. I admit, I heard talk on the internet this year about how extraterrestrial life had been proven, but I didn't really bother to check it out. One, I think I can make a compelling case from the Bible that life, or at least intelligent life, is limited by God to planet Earth. I'm prepared to revisit my position in the presence of actual compelling evidence, but scuttlebutt here and there on the internet is not actual compelling evidence. In fact, most of the talk I heard was in a joking context as in how hilarious it was that the biggest news in the history of the world can't compete with Kim Kardashian's love life in the headline Olympics. I assume that if most of the world thought the story was a big joke, it probably was. And as it turns out, it was a big joke. At least that's what the smart money says. And that's coming from a news-gathering perspective, not a God-has-his-eye-on-humanity perspective. Let's look at the so-called evidence first. We're supposed to believe these fossils still have eyes? And even eggs? And their similarity to Hollywood depictions of aliens is a complete coincidence? 
And what about the researcher himself? Well, he did get caught trying to pass a mummified human child off as an alien back in 2015. So there's a bit of a credibility issue there. But Hal, you may be saying, I thought there was something like that in America this year also. Well, you're likely thinking of Ryan Graves, a former U.S. Navy pilot who testified before Congress, along with former intelligence officer David Grush, that the U.S. government was in possession of irrefutable proof of alien life. Proof that he did not share, of course. Oh, and Mr. Graves was there with Mr. Masson in Mexico City. And credibility problems are contagious. So why is it that so many people are willing to believe stories about aliens? I think it's in part a way to replace God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has placed eternity in our hearts. We're supposed to believe the world is more than we see here on earth. We're supposed to look up into the heavens and yearn for something bigger, something orderly, something that makes the chaos of this world fall into place somehow. It's what Paul meant in Acts 17 verses 26 and 27 when he said God made us with appointed times and boundaries so that we'd be compelled to reach out for God. God is himself reaching out to that sort of seeker. But today it seems most seekers have already decided God is not the answer. They'll accept pretty much anything else, but not that. Aliens brought life to this planet? Yes. We're living in the matrix? Yes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? No, that can't possibly be it. I don't want to reduce the science of apologetics to simply saying God makes more sense than the other explanations, although he certainly does. I would say, though, that a person with a truly open mind can and will find his way to God. I know that because God is busy finding his way to him. He's not willing that any should perish, says 2 Peter 3, 9. He will catch you in his net if you're willing to be caught, if you're willing to open your mind to living by faith instead of just by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And if you are, if you choose faith, without which it's impossible to please him, according to Hebrews eleven six, you'll be amazed at the things God will show you. This is what I've been playing. I was visited by aliens once. Would you like to hear the story? I thought so. Their leader called himself Edwin. He was from the planet Florida. He and his crew visited me and my crew a couple of years ago. Naturally, I was eager to share some of the culture of Texas and of Casa Hammonds, so we got out the board games. We don't have much opportunity to play games with seven players, so our selection was a bit limited. But one of the ones we settled on was Mission Red Planet, a game in which you compete against other spaceship captains for the right to exploit our closest neighbor for all the orange, pink, and purple plastic that you can manage to find. Because we're so woefully short of worthless bits of junk here on Earth, right? Anyway, rocket ships leave for Mars on the regular. You achieve success by having a majority interest in the right areas of the planet and its moon. As usual with area control games here on planet Earth, it can get a bit complicated. The rockets don't always launch when you expect them to. They may change course during the launch sequence. And your competitors may be moving their efforts into your existing area of interest while you're distracted with your plans for expansion. Since we don't play too much, we mess the rules up a bit. But I think it's safe to say a good time was had by all. I hope Edwin comes to visit us again one day. I've mentioned the phenomenon of take that in board games before. Mission Red Planet is not the most extreme example of take that we own by any stretch of the imagination. 
but there is plenty of opportunity for your elaborate plans for success to be derailed, even accidentally, by someone else who happens to stumble onto your spaceship. It's not fair. It's not right. It's just life. And you can sit in the corner and protest until you're promised better treatment from the powers that be, or you can join the game, plan for success, reject poor strategy and improve good ones, and accept with grace the outcome that follows, knowing that you gave it your best effort. The real victory in board games, as far as I'm concerned, is in the effort, not the score sheet. A critic might say I take that attitude because the score sheet so rarely speaks favorably about me, but I don't really think that's it. Joy is in the playing, in the improving, and in the fellowship that's found along the way. People cut the famous Robert Burns quote about the best laid plans of mice and men off in the middle to avoid butchering the Scottish dialect, but we all know what it means. A mouse may build the best house the field has ever seen, but it all goes awry if the farmer destroys it while cutting the grass. And your creative ability, far greater than the mouse's, sometimes seems to only set you up for greater disappointment. But your job is not to win the game in the usual sense. Your job is to be part of the victory Jesus Christ has already won on your behalf. The variables that alter the results you imagine yourself to be owed simply serve as reminders of your utter need for Him and for the grace He offers when we invariably are found wanting. So sit back and relax on your voyage to another world. Rejoice that someone far more capable than you is operating the ship. And if your own best laid plans seem to be exploding on the launch pad, Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.